to be seated, that's okay as well. Either way, take a, a Bible, and let's turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 18. We're going to read verses 9 through 14. That's also located on page 877. If you would like to use a Bible from the church, there might be one right in front of you in the pew. Luke chapter 18, beginning at verse 9. This is God's word for us this morning. And here's what God says. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You may be seated. Father, there is no word like your word. We're grateful that you've given us your word and Father, now as we continue our moments of worship, we pray that even now as we look at your word, you would be pleased that, that we would honor you by looking to your word. Father, we would pray that as we do look at your word, that your spirit would be at work in our midst, that you would do wonderful things in our hearts and lives, that you would change us, that you would teach us. For we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we finish our series on the parables. We started on Memorial Day weekend, and it's now Labor Day weekend, and we wrap this up this morning. I would remind us, this is the last time I'll say this for a while, but uh, when we think about the parables, parables deal in comparisons. They are earthly stories. They are earthly things that uh, has a point of comparison to teach us something about uh, a spiritual truth or a spiritual reality. That's been the deal all the way through the parables this summer, and that's the deal for our time together this morning. This story, verses 10, 11, 12, and 13, this story about two guys who went up to the temple to pray, is, uh, its aim is to make a comparison in your life and in my life. And in this case, I can't think of a more important point of comparison as we deliberate on uh, what kind of people 
can live in the presence of God? What kind of people can have a right relationship with God? This parable, uh, as I've alluded to, describes two guys, a, uh, a Pharisee, and in that day and age, the, the, the Pharisees were, were a uh, highly respected religious class of, of Jewish people. They were um, perceived and even promoted as superior, morally and religiously. Tax collectors in that day um, were, um, I'm not saying anything about today, but, but in that day, tax collectors were crooks. So, no editorial comment beyond that. So uh, they, they, they weren't well regarded, well thought of, well liked. Uh, they, uh, they worked on commission. So in other words, if you legitimately owed the government X amount of dollars for your taxes, um, if they could somehow get some more out of you, then they would get to keep that part. And so kind of a, a bit of a dishonesty at work there in that operation. So, um, but it's talking about these two guys who went to the temple, the Jewish temple there in Jerusalem, uh, to, to pray. And yet, I would suggest to you right off the bat that this is really not about prayer per se. It's really about the true nature of being in proper relationship with the Lord, with the God who made us. And what these prayers function as is these prayers, the two different prayers revealed by these two different guys, uh, reveal to us um, um, what really is their own understanding of God and uh, their own understanding of uh, how to practice a relationship with God. What a relationship with God consists of is seen through their eyes in terms of the words that they spoke in their prayers. Now, before we look at the parable itself, which is just those middle verses, 10, 11, 12, and 13, verse 9 and verse 14 kind of uh, surround the parable itself. And uh, I would suggest to you that without... Without verse 9 and verse 14, we would, we would probably be more apt to miss the point of the parable. Um, verse 9 and verse 14 uh, greatly clarifies what is to be the point of the parable, the, the matter of comparison, if you would. Uh, uh, verse 9 and verse 14 um, qualify what we should take away. And uh, so let's look briefly at verse 9, make a comment about that. Verse 14, make a comment about that. Uh, the, the point of the parable is, is, was meant to teach something to those, it says there in our text, verse 9, who trusted in themselves. I will say more about that in a moment. But then lay your eyes on verse 14. Not only those who trusted themselves, but but almost kind of another way of saying that, those who ex exalted themselves. I would, I would suggest to you that that's not two different things, but almost kind of in this context, two ways of saying pretty much the same thing. They were, they were better than anyone else, uh, and uh, they believed in themselves.
reading an interesting book right now uh, entitled Generation Me. And um, if my book of the year last year was Them Before Us, probably my book of the year this year is Generation Me. Its subtitle is What's Wrong with Americans Today as to why they are more confident, more assertive, and more entitled, and yet more miserable than ever before. And that's not to pick on generations, because if you think about it, uh, whatever a a present generation believes, it's, it's because that present generation has been taught that by the preceding generations, to believe that. Um, And uh, so what is a common notion in our culture today? Well, things like, A, you are special. Things like, uh, do what you think will make you happy. Things like, uh, what you feel is more important than anything else. Things like, be your own hero. And things like, believe in yourself. Now, even those statements, they are so commonly assumed as, duh, yeah, because our culture has been so ingrained with these matters of orientation that to um, pick on those statements is to is to pick on cultural orthodoxy. You are going against the grain of all that's good, right, and, uh, and holy. And, uh, and yet that last line that I said that, that we are catechizing our culture to affirm is believe in yourself. I would just point out that uh, this is the ace problem of the first guy here in our parable. Uh, he told this parable about those who believed in themselves. And this may come as a shocking description for some of us, but the scriptures do not command us to believe in ourselves. The scriptures actually inform us that when we're in right relationship with God, his love for us is eternal and it's deep and it's robust. And one of the things that his love's love for us does is it puts us in experiences, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us, so that we would learn to no longer trust in ourselves, but in him who was raised from the dead. In other words, the scriptures don't tell us to trust in ourselves. The scriptures tell us to trust in Jesus. And this may come as a shocker, but that's not the same thing. In other words, this gentleman, while it was of a moral and religious orientation, he was special. He was not like the rest of us. He was a notch above. And that affected how he perceived God. That affected how he talked to God in prayer. That affected how he related to God, his own understanding of these things. And and what we see is that his prayer is really... uh, a prideful expression of self-reliance. He stood by himself, we're told in verse 11. Stood, stood by himself. I, t- I would suggest to you the st- significance of that 
The reason why he stood by himself is that he, if he was standing around people like us, he would be defiled and contaminated because he's special, we're not. In fact, in the prayer, he actually says, as he's, as he's uh, going over his resume, uh, he says, uh, I, I, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even that tax collector, the other guy in the story. What's wrong with this prayer? I think it's important that we understand what is wrong with this prayer. On the one hand, the things that's mentioned here are things that elsewhere in the scriptures, the scriptures tell us to be that kind of person. The scriptures tell us to not be extortioners, to not be adulterers, uh, uh, to, to not be unjust. This guy is just saying, moi, right here, you know. Uh, so the, I would suggest to you the issue is not that he expresses uh, uh, his life in such a, a fashion. What I would suggest to you is, A, first of all, um, uh, it, this is honestly not probably even a prayer. You, you remember, what's the preface there in verse 9? Jesus told this parable about those who trusted in themselves. I mean, what, what is prayer anyway other than a verbal expression of reliance upon the Lord? But, but so what are you doing verbally when you're not relying upon the Lord? You're relying upon yourself. Well, you're, it's a shell game, if you would. Uh, this is not an earnest prayer. This is, this is not a prayer, Lord, I thank you. Is this, it sounds like it's a prayer of gratitude toward the Lord. I would suggest to you it's not a prayer of gratitude toward the Lord. He is voicing a self-congratulatory statement I'm surprised he didn't uh, pull a, 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 a muscle patting himself on the back with, th with this one uh, Jesus over in Matthew 15 talks about people who would pray but whose heart wasn't in the prayer he says in Matthew 15 8 these people they honor me with their lips but their heart is Far from me. This is a this is that kind of thing on display. It, it, it's good words. It's good verbiage, uh, but the motivation. It's not the content of what's being prayed about is the problem, but it's the motivation behind. It's that's what's going on in the heart under the surface. I would suggest to you that when he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other men, uh, it's, it wouldn't be much of a stretch to say, God, I thank you that I'm me. And Lord, if you knew what was right, you would thank you for me. You would thank me for me, for all that matters. Uh, this is, a, this is a, a skewed focus on life, and it's, it's using a religious thing, i.e. praying, to actually be self-focused, self-congratulatory, actually to be self-reliant. The deepest problem with this gentleman and, and his prayer it's not what the guy says he did or didn't do. Um, see, the, there is a huge difference, and I mean huge. In fact, I can't even reach my hands out to show you how huge it is. There is a huge difference in doing moral and religious things because you trust in Jesus 
and doing moral and religious things instead of trusting in Jesus. This guy is doing religious and moral things, which would, which would otherwise be commendable things, but he's doing it not of a, out of a heart of true reliance upon the Lord, but he's doing it actually as an expression of his own reliance on himself and his own notions of self-congratulations. His actions and the this verbal description of his actions uh, do, did not reflect that he was... Uh, trusting in the Lord, but it reflects that he was actually just the opposite, not trusting in the Lord, trusting in himself, feeling good about himself. His prayers were not exalting the Lord, but his prayers were an expression of boasting in himself. Now look at the second guy. We're told about the second guy um, but the tax collector standing far off, I would suggest to you that while the one guy stood by himself because he didn't want to be messed, messed up by people like us, the other guy stood far off because, honestly, he didn't think he was worthy. The, the one guy thinks he's better than everybody else. This, this guy thinks everybody else is better than him. He actually thinks he's the, the, the worst pick of the litter, if you would. He stands far off. He, in his estimation, he's not worthy to be with good church religious people. What he doesn't understand is that even good church religious people aren't worthy to stand in the presence of church religious people. I mean, none, none of us are worthy to stand in the presence of a holy God. Whether you've never been to church before or you've been to church all your life, either way, the way that we have access to God is not based upon our churchianity or not. This is a prayer of uh, someone who is not prideful and self-reliant, but someone who is humble and self-denying. He doesn't, he doesn't think he's over the top. He thinks he's not much. He's not sure that he's even qualified to come into the presence of God, certainly at the temple with all those fine, upstanding religious folk. It says there he would not even lift up his eyes. I think that's a, a reflection of his own estimation of, I'm not worthy to be here. I, 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 don't, I don't even think I could look at God and, and see his face and, and live to tell about it. I'm such a, 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 a sinful kind of Person. It says he beat his breast. I would suggest to you even that is a symbol of he knows that his problem is right here in the heart. He needs a heart fix. His, he has a heart ailment called a sinful nature. And, and until that gets resolved, he's unable to be able to worthily stand in the presence of a God and ask anything of this God. And so what does he ask for? Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Now, what I find intriguing is when, he, when we read here that he prayed, Lord, have mercy upon me. And that's a good description of what he asked for. But what he asked for is really, it, it, what he literally asks for is kind of a huh kind of moment. 
He literally asks, Lord, be propitious toward me. Now, do you see why he say, <laughs> our translations say merciful? Because you're like, propitiate what? Yeah. Uh, well, propitiation is a really important Old Testament word. And you would find it like in the book of Leviticus, which, well, that's why none of us know about it, because we're scared of the book of Leviticus. You know? But it's, it's in the book of Leviticus. It was on this day called the Day of Atonement, which today we call that Yom Kippur. But, 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 it, but in ancient Israel, the Day of Atonement was a high holy day in, in which an, an animal sacrifice would be offered as a substitute on behalf of the sins of the people of Israel. Because the sins of the because the people of Israel had been taught that they were sinners, and the just wages of their sin was death. In other words, being a sinner meant that they deserved to die. But God would put forth an animal as a substitute, and, and that animal would be sacrificed. And as that animal was sacrificed, the, the blood of that animal, after it had been shed, would be sprinkled on this thing called the mercy seat, which was actually the, the lid on the Ark of the Covenant. You might have seen that in Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know. um, so, but, as that, but as that blood was sprinkled on that mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, then the word that was used through that sacrifice of atonement is that God was propitiated. In other words, that the justice of God was satisfied so that God would then act merciful and not just towards sinners. That's what he's saying here. God, would you propitiate yourself toward my sin? Don't, Lord, don't treat me according to what my sins deserve for me to be treated. Lord, have merciful to me, for me by taking my sins and the just punishment for my sins. And, and Lord, would you put that punishment on somebody else? Now, in the Old Testament in a symbolic way, in a preview of coming attractions, uh, that propitious sacrifice was uh, a bull or a goat, and, the, and the, it was the blood of a bull or a goat that was sprinkled on the mercy seat so that God's justice, God's, we could even say God's just wrath was satisfied so that God would then uh, respond mercifully toward sinners. That's what this guy is praying for. Lord, would you, would you propitiate my justice onto somebody else so that you would be merciful to me? You know, for a guy who's a pretty good sinner, he understands the Bible pretty good. He's not a highfalutin religious expert like the Pharisee, but he's a sinner who knows that he needs mercy before a holy God and that God is so gracious to put forward a substitute who would take our sins upon himself and bear up under the punishment of that sins, those sins, thus satisfying the justice of God, abating the wrath of God from us so that we would know something of the grace and the mercy and the love of God. That is an incredible prayer. <laughs> it, 
it doesn't reflect much what you and I would value as healthy self-esteem. But you know what? When you and I understand that we're sinners and that God has placed our sins upon his son, Jesus, and he has punished Jesus as our substitute and in our place, the, the, the real way to move forward in life is to not gaze at our navel looking for self-esteem. The real way to move forward in life is to look to Jesus and esteem him. Because in love, he came uh, to rescue us from our sins. And, And how does Jesus wrap up this parable? He says, I tell you, this man... Which man? This man, uh, the the guy who was the bona fide moral and religious expert in his own estimation, or the guy who saw himself as a sinner before God who needed mercy before God. It was that guy. This man, it says here, went home, and this is another fancy Bible word, went home justified. The notion of justification means that People like you and I, even though we are sinners, people like you and I could be actually declared, legally declared righteous in the sight of God. Not righteous in the sight of God because we have amassed a a collection or a set of righteous deeds to earn that righteousness, but righteous because as sure as Jesus took our sins as our substitute and bore up under the punishment of our sins, Jesus actually made an incredible exchange. We gave him our sins, and when we trusted in Jesus, he gave us his righteousness. Oh, and he had a life of righteousness. There's never been a guy like him. If there is someone who we could actually say, you know, you're special, it would be Jesus. Jesus is special because he was the God-man. He came and did what you and I have not done and aren't even capable of doing, he lived a perfect life, a righteous life, a holy life, an obedient life. The only one who didn't deserve to die for sins was Jesus. And yet the only one who was qualified to make a successful payment for our sins was Jesus because he had lived a perfect life of righteousness. And there at the cross, when he takes our sins upon himself, God raised him from the dead. And any and all who trust not in themselves, but trust in Jesus, are given, gifted, granted a standing before God that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Yeah, we're still sinners. But do you understand that if you are trusting in Christ, the Father loves you exactly the way he loves his Son, And he sees you and I exactly the same way he sees his son. He loves his righteous son. And all who are in Jesus are now classified, regarded as righteous sons, righteous children, righteous sons and daughters. Because Christ has taken away our sins on the cross and has given to us his righteousness. That's what this is saying, that, that this guy, this guy who said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, this guy who trusted not in himself, but in the God who raises the dead, it is this guy 
who was granted a relationship before God that gave him a right standing before God. This is really the only guy who was qualified to pray that day. Because he came not in his own righteousness. He came not in his own perceived moral authority or religious authority, but he came knowing that he was a sinner who needed mercy. God brought him into relationship and heard his prayer. I would suggest to you that there is absolutely one flat-out prayer in all the universe that God will always hear. And that is from your heart if you say, God, I am a sinner. I need your mercy. God will never say, get away from me, kid, you bug me. God will welcome you into his arms. And you will be given a whole new legal standing of righteousness. Not something that you and I have pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps and done for ourselves, but something that God has done in and through his son. And the outcome of that is that when we understand Christ and what he has done on the cross, those realities do not amp up our self-esteem The gospel is not a fast track to a life of narcissism. The gospel is an opportunity to live out a life of self-denial because we're convinced of this. Jesus is better. He's better than even ourselves. And trusting in Jesus is better. It is better than trusting in ourselves. The cross is is to direct the boasting of our lives away from ourselves and toward the one who has laid down his life for us. The cross and what Christ did on the cross is not to fill us with ourselves, but to empty us so that we are filled with the spirit of Jesus. The the cross is actually the means by which you and I cannot uh, rev up and elevate our self-reliance but so that we can renounce any remaining vestiges of self-reliance and we can trust only in Jesus. As it turns out, a culture who wants to be happy will never obtain that happiness by making the number one directive of their life to be happy. A culture who wants to be happy must know that a happy God made us. And this happy God shares his happiness with all his people, with those who know Jesus, those who don't live for themselves, but who live for the one who laid down his life. So if you make happiness your number one goal in life, you won't get Jesus and you won't get happiness. If you make trusting and following Jesus the number one goal in your life, then you will get Jesus and you will get his happiness. So how are you going to pray? Will you and I pray prayers that, are remor- that morally and religiously 
are commendable, but actually are damnable because they reflect a reliance upon ourselves? Or will you and I pray prayers that reflect a humility and a need for mercy even as we admit our sinfulness before a holy God? Turn to Jesus. Trust only in him. Father, thank you for your word. For we know that there is no word like your word. And we would pray now that you would enliven our hearts by your spirit to believe this word that we've just read. And that we would want to be people who do not rely upon themselves, who don't believe in themselves, who don't live for ourselves, but people who are honest before a holy God. Father, may we be a people who leave out of here knowing that we are in need of mercy. But may we be people who leave out of here satisfied that our God is rich and abundant in mercy toward all those who trust in Jesus. For we pray these things in Jesus' name.